0: Okay, there we go. So we're in, boy, it seems like forever, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. We're in Exodus 3, and it is amazing when you skip a week how much you get out of the habit, like, super quick. Um, So we're in Chapter 3. Quick review. In Chapter 1, Pharaoh got mad at the children of Israel and started to uh, create a national program of abortion and uh, wanted uh, midwives to get rid of babies, so they did the post-birth abortions. Um, and in chapter two, Moses, uh, survives this policy and has a mom that, um, uh, puts him in a basket instead of throws him in the river, which is what she was supposed to do. He grows up, he tries to be the boss of everybody and they don't want him to be the boss of everybody. So he runs away because Pharaoh's going to kill him because he, in being boss of everybody, he thought murdering Egyptians was the way to do it. It was not. So he goes and runs off. And he lands with a sheep herder in the land of Midian named Ruel, or his uh, other name is Jethro. And we see that name being used interchangeably. Ruel means friend of God, which is a Hebrew name. Um, But there's some indication as we go forward that there was other kinds of worship in that household, too. So we'll see that when we get to it. So the end of chapter 2 ends with this little paragraph where God is at work, um, which implies, or at least the way Moses is writing Exodus... Um, that this f- story is not about Moses as much as it is about God doing God's work, God doing God's things. So here we are in chapter three, verse one. Uh, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. And by the way, that's also a Hebrew name. It means his abundance. Um, uh, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, um, because he married one of Jethro's daughters, who was the little birdie. Remember her name, Zipporah? and he led the flock to the back of the desert. I don't know what the back of the desert means. That's a really curious like I couldn't figure that one out. So apparently there's a front and a back to the desert. Oh, yours just says west side. Mm-hmm. Huh, that's interesting. So back of the desert um is an area of the desert most people think uh that's not even good for sheep herding. It's kind of a wilderness that gets more rocky and sandy and it's not there just isn't a lot of plant life. So he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So this is going to be Moses' mountain even today. There are Saudis that call uh, this area Moses' mountain. mountain. By noting the role of their father-in-law, we know Raul and Jethro are the same person. Moses went from royalty in Egypt to leading somebody else's flock. He's now a hired hand. He's the guy that in the 1930s would go around from farm to farm looking for jobs. He lands with Jethro. Jethro says, you can work here and you can marry one of my many daughters. Um, So he's tending. Uh, The word tending um, is an ongoing thing. So Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, Jethro, which means it's not necessarily the present tense, though it can be read that way. It's actually an ongoing sense of the word. So he has been tending the flock of Jethro for a long time. We find out later it's been about 40 years that he's been tending this flock and uh, settled in, which means Moses took a very long time to get rid of his own will and submit to what God had given him as a portion. Because he thought he was going to be the ruler of the Hebrew people. It's taken him about 40 years, I think, to just be content and realize this is going to be it. Because after one year, he's probably thinking, well, surely I'm going to go back. I'll just let things settle down. Maybe after five years, he's like, well, I'm doing pretty well here and I'm getting some kids and things are going well and I'm starting my family. Um, but you know, 40 years later, we're going to have this intervention from God, um, where he can be there. Verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. (laughs) So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. This is worth stopping and looking at. And I love how this next phrase is interesting. Then Moses said, he's alone by himself with a bunch of sheep. So he's talking to himself out loud. (laughs) Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. Apparently, bushes burning in the desert are not uncommon. This happens all the time. The heat gets certain uh, uh, hot enough and the sunlight hits it in a certain way. And in this part of the world, you will see bushes that burn. It's not the burning bush that's the attention getter. It's that it doesn't burn up that's the attention getter. And that's the question Moses has when he says, I will now turn aside. I think he's just not a very good writer at the beginning of the scroll. And he gets to be a better writer because he's it's fairly starchy. Um, but apparently he's not going to turn aside until it occurs to him that bush isn't burning. So I'm thinking he's kind of walked away ways past it. And then he has to turn aside to go look at it because he's doing it. Anyways, so burning bushes um, should normally just go poof. They go pretty quick when they go, I guess. Um, So him not walking on is because it didn't go poof. It just kept going and going and going. So he's going to stop and go take a look at it. Um, Some people think maybe he saw a mirage here. Like he's out in the desert. He's not quite right he's writing funny and he's talking to himself. So maybe this is a mirage. I don't think that's the intent of the writer. And um, it doesn't seem like the bush burns up. So even if he's having a hallucination, the hallucination does not stop. It keeps going. So in any case, uh, there's no hint of fatigue here. It doesn't say that he was wore out. It doesn't say that he was tired. It just says that he's trucking out to the back of the desert. So given that he's been there 40 years and he's not dumb, he'd have to be really dumb to get fatigued. He knows how to handle himself in the desert. He knows how to bring water. He knows how to take it easy. He knows how to keep a nice slow pace and use his shepherd stick to keep the sheep going. Uh, So it's a pretty big stretch for me to think that a 40 year old shepherd would get messed up in the desert. Like this is an area he knows and he knows it well, which again is why the bush does not burn, which makes him stop and Think I will turn aside and check out this bush, um, because he actually knows the territory he's in, and he knows these bushes, and he knows that it's been burning a little too long. Um, notice that the angel in verse two is actually called uh, Jehovah um, in verse four, so it shifts. So the word angel angel here is being used interchangeably with Jehovah. So far in the Bible, we've seen a lot of names of God. Jehovah and Elohim are the two most popular. Um, and, and Yahweh and Jehovah are actually the same four letters pronounced differently. Um, so it's been overwhelming those two. In this particular chapter, we're going to get a new name for God, which is kind of cool because every time God's about to do something, he gives himself a new name. And I think that's going to be fun in what we're going to see here. And the angel transferring to Lord, a lot of people think this is another visit from Jesus um, because it is someone who's just incarnated. Um, and so... If you're looking for kind of Christophanies, this could easily be a Christophany um, just because of how that's put together. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. God actually waits for Moses to turn. And you wonder what would happen to the history of the world if Moses didn't stop and just kept walking. And so... On a number of occasions throughout the word that we've already seen, God actually waits for people to take one step towards him before things happen. So God actually keeps quiet until Moses pays attention. Um, and I think that's really cool. Uh, the double use of the name Moses, Moses in verse 4, we've seen that a ton. He said, Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22, 11. Jacob, Jacob, in Genesis 46:2. Samuel, Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3:10. Simon, Simon, in Luke 22:31. And then Martha, Martha, which is not from the Brady Bunch. That's from Luke 10:41. And then last but not least, there's Saul, Saul, in Acts 9:4. So theoretically, we are, you know, getting down to one of the seven most major encounters in the Bible. And every time we see a double use of the term, there's about to be a mission given by God that's going to change the face of the world. Um, and I love that Moses, and it shows us a little bit of the character of Moses, because of course he just turns and says, here I am. And that's the same thing that Abraham and Jacob essentially says, I'm right here. So, um, Moses has been there. He's been content. He's found his peace. He's been here for 40 years. This is going to be his life. And he's come to terms with that. But when God calls, he still says, here I am. And then he said, don't draw near this place. So I love the fact that it's Moses, Moses, don't come any, just don't come near. A lot of people believe that's because symbolically humans aren't supposed to be touching God. Like the the cathedral ceiling where the fingers don't quite touch, that we can't really come into God's space. We're not God and we shouldn't be there. Verse 5 says, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take the sandals, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Shadow. <laughs> You got to lay down, Pooch. Lay down. (laughs) Lay down. Do you need your kennel? All the way down. Down, down, down. Good boy. Stay. Stay. Good boy. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Where was I, now that we have shadow under control? <laughs> Drawing near. Drawing near? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take off, take the sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Interesting, because it doesn't say that the bush changed. It's now that Moses knows that the, this bush is... There's something in the bush talking to him that's God... He doesn't want to look anymore. And I think that's a great humility that Moses shows. Um, God is stating who he is, interestingly, in the present tense. So if you look at these words, I think this is... We get a lot of theology in this chapter through tenses and use of words. Um, He's presenting himself in the present tense as though the three people, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, are still alive. They're actually... (laughs) He is the God of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob. Almost like all three people are there at the same time. Like, I am currently this person's God. And implying that there's life after death, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still there, um, and that God is timeless in a way, and that they're all there at the same time. Don't draw near is, again, that thing with we don't want to necessarily, God man shouldn't necessarily touch. In this culture, the courtesy is to take your shoes off when you come into somebody's house or when you come into a holy place. When you're out in the middle of the desert, God's making the place holy because Moses has to take his sandals off, which means he has to walk in the dirt, which is an odd thing. But the idea is when you take your shoes off is that you wash your feet and you get off all the nonsense of the world in order to go into somebody's home. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a sign of reverence. So shoes are a luxury. Not everyone got to wear shoes during this period of time. So to take them off uh, in someone's house uh, is that kind of respect thing. We still take off shoes when we go to people's houses, so it's not new. What's new is that God made this bush his house. God can make any place his house, and wherever God is, holiness is. And wherever God is, we need to be showing that reverence and humility. Um. idea that God's saying we can't come where God is, I thought was interesting. And it's reflected in Jesus too. So if you want to, you can flip to John 7. And I want to read a little piece there because initially you always think God's saying, well, you can come to heaven, you can be where I'm at and all that sort of thing. But there's still this kind of distance between mm-hmm. God and man. We're not God and, and 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 what is going on there. But he says a very similar thing in, in John 7, verse 33, Jesus turns to his disciples And he says, yet a little while while I am with you, then I go unto him that sent me. Ye that seek me shall not find me, for where I am, you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go to be dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, you shall seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And what it is, is that Jesus is God and he's trying to express this idea that there is a separation between us and you can't come where I'm going. Uh, And he's talking about, of course, he's going to go to heaven or to be at holiness or with God. Um, Where we can sing praises to God, we can't necessarily be God. And there's enough people in the Christian community that will proclaim themselves speaking for God as though they are God. And it's something that always makes me skeptical. And I can't help it. Um, I do think there is such a thing called prophecy. And I do think there is a thing where God puts words on people's hearts. And I get that. Overuse of that or misuse of that is also one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not use my name in vain. You better be darn sure that God's talking to you. And when God's talking to you out of a burning bush in the desert, then you can assume that that's a safe bet that that's actually God talking to you. But we do it so flippantly today in American Christianity that it kind of scares me. Oh, God gave me a word. Did God give you a word? Was it as clear as what Moses got? Because we're talking about 400 years since God has talked to a Jewish person, right? 400 years. It's twice the length of America being a country, but we have people talking to God's talking to people all over um, in some parts of our church on a daily basis, which I don't see as it's hard for me to believe. And even as a Christian, I'm really skeptical. And I do believe that there's a Holy spirit that guides us in what to do. Um, But oftentimes those words that people get, are really just carrying forward an agenda that they wanted in the first place, which makes me really suspect of those things. So there's my skepticism. We are not God, and we should know that there's places where God says, don't come any nearer to me. Don't pretend that you're me, and don't speak for me if I'm not saying something. And God gets pretty particular about things. And Jesus kind of had the same thing, that there's a separation between Jesus and the rest of humanity. That separation, though, is in our nature, not in our relationship. In our relationships, we can become intimate with God. We can become very close to God. Uh, When the still small voice speaks behind our ear, that's pretty close, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same place. Verse seven, and the Lord said, when we get to the end and we say, well, what did you think? I'd love to hear what you think about that idea of distance between God. Anyways, verse seven, and the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good large land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the cellulites. They're the large people from up north. Seeing, I have seen God's present tense and future tense are both here. In fact, there's an eternal tense to it. So do you see the phrase where it says, seeing, I have seen. So essentially they're going for a present eternal and everywhere tense. God sees all things at all times. Again, there's a lot of theology built in that. God will bring them out of Egypt. And and that's note the phrasing here is God's going to bring them out of Egypt, not Moses. God doesn't actually need Moses, but he wants to use Moses, which I still think is a miracle. God actually works with humans throughout human history. Um, uh, I have come down as one word, which is in the Hebrew, yarad, which means to lower oneself or to condescend. God is condescending himself to come and deal with humans. It is beneath him, but he does it out of his grace and his mercy. And you got to think if the God of the universe is dealing with us lowly humans, that is truly an act of love because he could just not have humans exist, right? But he does. And he works with us. Verse nine, now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Um, this is, um, we talked about chiasms before. There is chiasm here. Um, and if you could kind of see it, um, there's the piece with the, I've seen the oppression, but now he's coming back to that oppression piece you go in another notch, there's the taskmasters. Um, and then we see the milk and honey, um, which is the middle part of it. Not only has he chosen this land, but he's chosen it for abundance. So if you take verses seven through um, 10, the very middle of that chiasm is this idea of a land with milk and honey. And when I was a kid, I always heard the phrase flowing with milk and honey. And I thought to myself, that would be sticky and messy. And it's, it's a metaphor, because I don't think there's actually rivers of milk. And there aren't lakes of honey, but an imagination of a child can go crazy with that kind of thing. Um, Not only that, if there's a river of flowing milk, how many cows does that take (laughs) to keep it going? And these are the things I thought in Sunday school that often got me in trouble with the Sunday school teachers. Um, But now as a grown-up, I know that's a metaphor for an abundant land that has lots of produce. The honey would require lots of uh, flora. Um, because the honeys go with plant life and pollen and whatnot. To have lots of honey means you have lots of great plants. The milk would require a land that could sustain cattle herds and goat herds and all other herds that produce milk, so that you would have lots of uh, fauna in a land like that. So it's a land that does both. Verse 10, Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children out of Egypt? Now we see a different Moses. 40 years ago, Moses thought he was the man. Now, um, there's a little insecurity here because God puts his security or Moses puts his security in God. He's developed tons of humility. Who am I? Like I'm some old guy that herds sheep that can't talk very well, that has a temper. And I'm, you know, the way Moses has written this, he's just a nameless kid that got saved. There's nothing to Moses that's particularly good at what's going to go on. At first, here, this little bit of humility shows that Moses has developed character. As Moses continues to resist God, he's almost swung the pendulum past simple humility into not willing to work with God on things because he doesn't believe God can make things happen through him anymore, which is kind of sad because he's gone from total arrogance thinking he knew what to do to now thinking it's impossible for God to work with him. And somewhere in the middle is where Moses is going to learn to live. So he said, I will certainly be with you. This is nice of God to give him this assurance. I will be with you. Also notice that he skips Moses' question. Moses asked, who am I? And God's answer is, I'll be with you. In other words, you're nobody. You're a guy that I'm going to be with. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain wait a second, if there's a million plus like, Jewish people or Hebrews that he's going to bring out of Egypt, that we're now in a rocky desert area in the back of the desert or in the west of the desert where there isn't food to sustain a million people. So it must be God if you bring a million people uh, out to this particular part of the world and that they're not going to starve to death. So God's making a pretty this position or this particular mountain that they're at right now would not sustain that many people. Implying that God, uh... no, I'm going to skip that. So Moses asks about himself, God answers about God's self. Um, and I just like that idea of, you know, God turned to Moses and saying, Moses, buddy, it's not about you. I'm going to do a work. You've always thought it's about you. It's not. God's gentle in his direction and guidance. God could be a lot harsher with Moses right now. God could bring up the murder. He could bring up Moses's faults, but God doesn't seem to have have any time for any of that. Um, he's just talking about what he's going to do. So, and God generously gives him a f- future confirmation point, uh, which is nice. Like Romans 8:31, where it says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's in it, there's nothing that's going to stop that. So anyways, and then finally that on the mountain thing where you're thinking, wait, this mountain. And I imagine Moses hearing that confirmation and then turning and kind of thinking to God, like, wait, what a second, what are you doing? Where are we going to bring people? So Moses continues to protest, right? Remember at this point in history, Moses hasn't seen the plagues of Egypt. He hasn't seen the Red Sea parting. He hasn't seen manna in the wilderness. He hasn't seen water coming from rocks. He hasn't seen any of that stuff. And trajectory wise, um, God's going to do a lot of intervention in history, but so far through Genesis and most of Exodus, we haven't seen these kinds of miracles happen yet. So Moses has none of that in his memory or recollection. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What am I going to say to them? So Moses is saying, okay, I'm going to go talk to these people, and they're going to ask for a name. This is important because when God introduced himself to Abraham and Jacob, he gave different names to them. So there's an expectation that if God ever talks to the children of Israel again, he's going to have a new name. And sure enough, God gives him a new name. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. so this is a extremely powerful, I want to spend some time on. I am who I am. Cause I think it's super cool. And this is where I geeked out this time. Um, even in the Hebrew, um, this is going to go with verse 15, um, verse 15. I'll finish this little passage. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So he repeats him. He kind of reflects 13 and 15 kind of reflect each other. And again, we have a chiasm with verse 14, where I am who I am. sits right in the middle. So even in the Hebrew, this is a super cool, you can almost hear like this sentence kind of an exclamation point just popping off the page. Um, So where it says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Uh, it reads, Elohim, Amar, Moses, Hayah, Hayah, Amar, Amar, Ben Israel, Shalak. Elohim, Amar, Ode, Moses, Ben Israel, Jehovah, Elohim, Abraham, Elohim, Isaac, Elohim, Jacob, Shalak, Shem, Olem, Zechar Dar, Dar. And it's just this really cool phrase where they've got these repeated words in it. It's almost poetic. Um, I am who I am, Hayah, Hayah, Amar, Amar. <laughs> is is kind of cool so this is how God talks even with a Minnesota accent this Hebrew kind of pops out you can hear the trumpet sounding Moses says who am I supposed to say you are and all of a sudden you get this you know Hayah Hayah Amar Amar you know figure that out Moses that's what you're going to say so I think it's really cool so we have a new name for God I am who I am and it's a powerful name Hayah is a primitive root word meaning to happen So God's calling himself to happen, but he's calling himself that with no senses. So there's no past tense, future tense, or or, um, present tense. God simply is. God has been. God was happened. God will become. You can mix them up in any way you want to, and it says I am. So in the Hebrew, he is all senses of all tenses all at the same time. So God's the one that has incomparable essential existence. He's the one who has always said and will always say, I am. I am who, I, who can say I am. He's the only one who can say I am. And if he says he's the only one who can say I am, and he is his own existence, this is the thing that theologians write entire books around. We're gonna spend about one minute on it, right? Mm-hmm. So haya, haya he is unto himself, he became his own becoming. He's completely consistent into himself. He is existence. What came before? God came before because God didn't have a before. God already was when before happened. Again, you can try to do mental dances with that, but we live in a time and we live in tenses. And in saying that, he's also saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all in the present tense. So he's saying, I am that God that has always been there and I always will be there. This is how Genesis starts with in the beginning, God. And it's the same consistent idea. So 400 years after um, Jacob uh, and, and Joseph saves the people of Israel, 400 years later, God basically says, you tell them, I am, I am who says I am, God is. So that's what you say. Moses, you go back and tell them and they say, who do you think you are? And what are you doing? You just say, I speak for God. That's all I need you to do. You're just a lump of meat that's going to go say God's ready to work with you. And that's all I need you to do. Oddly, Moses is going to resist even that. But before we go on, I had to point out that he, Haya is also happens to be Japanese for ninjas showing up on the scene and <laughs> saying, I got you. Right. And I thought that was kind of a cool image that. Hayah is a great word that even carries into other languages. I don't know if there's a connection there or not, but Moses says, whom shall I say you are? And God just says, Hayah! So Moses' job would be to say, when they say, well, who sent you? And he's just supposed to say, Hayah! And I thought that was really cool. He should say it twice, in fact. Hayah, Hayah! And I think that's gonna impress the Jewish elders. Because they'll know when there's a ninja in the room, and Moses is going to go be a God ninja, and that's what he's about to do. So I thought that was pretty cool, um, and that's why and that's why we enjoy Bible study nights. Um, you were is anybody thinking hayah yeah, before I pointed out the ninja comparison? No. How late were you up studying this? <laughs> this was midday, believe oh, it or not. Okay, that's scary. So one of the commentators made this offhanded comment saying the only other person in the Bible to use I am in the past, present, and future tense was Jesus. And Jesus did it all the time. He called himself I am way more than we're comfortable with. In fact, if you have a King James or a New King James version, almost every time Jesus identifies himself, he uses the Greek word for I am but he doesn't put he at the end. And in the English translations, and you'll see it in italics, Jesus will say, I am he, but the he isn't what he actually said. In the Greek, what's written down is he just says, I am. But for some reason, we add the pronoun, it's much more powerful if you don't add the extra word in the English, because Jesus is calling himself what God called himself to Moses. I'll give you a ton of examples. And also there's a ton of stuff in the Greek where if you leave it be Jesus sounds really confusing because he he mixes up all his tenses. And I think he's doing it on purpose because he is a timeless God, right? So in Mark 12:26 if you want to look at that one as touching and as touching the dead that they rise, yet he he have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him saying I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the dead, but the God of the living? Ye therefore do greatly err. Um, Jesus is pointing out here in Mark that with this passage, so Jesus is citing this passage we just looked at, that God is always there and that there is no such thing as dead people. That's one of the ways Jesus kind of pointed out that God's outside of time. In Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them, to observe all things whosoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. In Matthew twenty-eight, Jesus uses the present and the future tense. I am with you, even I am with you always in the present, even to the end of the world in the future tense. Luke twelve fifty-one. Over and over and over again we see Jesus doing this. This had to be totally infuriating to unbelievers. Like if you didn't think Jesus was God, this would tick you off. You suppose I am come to give earth peace on earth. In a lot of translations, we make that into like a normal sentence. But Jesus actually talked, he was kind of half Yoda. I suppose that I am come to give peace on the earth. That's interesting. That's a present future present tense. I tell you nay, but rather division. I didn't come here to bring peace. I came here to give you a decision. I'm going to divide you to people that believe and people that don't only an omnipresent God would speak like this. A human doesn't talk like this. And so when we see translations in English, we redo the wording to make it sound a little more, you know, English. John 8 leaves no doubt about this idea that Jesus was claiming the name of God. Um, If I take out the he's, which weren't there in the original Greek, if I go to John chapter 8, verse 24, this is Jesus, I said, therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. Right? No doubt. It keeps going. And flip down to verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 58, Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So in the book of John, John makes a huge point like that he's trying to present that Jesus said this over and over and over again. He used I am in the Greek as a self-definition, as a key deciding point if you are a believer or not a believer, the thing that either sends you to heaven or sends you to die in your sins. Um, cause God doesn't send people to hell. We're already on our way when we're born. God saves people from that path. So again, verse 24, 28, 58, that's just one chapter of John where Jesus is constantly saying, I am then, um, this one blew me away. Cause I just kept going. I was in geek mode at this point. I was going through all the gospels, trying to find any spots where I could doing word searches on. I am then doing word searches on the Greek one go to John 18, you got to see this. Most of us when people are coming to kill us would be a little stressed. We'd have some anxiety in that moment. We'd be like, please don't kill me. Or even if we were just ready to be martyrs, we'd be like, all right, kill me. The last thing a human being does is they think of making a cute word reference to Exodus 3 in the middle of this moment. And this just like, I was running downstairs going, Steph, you got to see this. This is crazy. John chapter 18, go to verse 3, listen to what only in your head think, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Just Jesus. Because he plays the whole situation, and he's, he's actually playing something out from Exodus 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, and the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Kill the beast! And then Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that he would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood there with them. Now, when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. I like how he asks, <laughs> so he makes him say it twice, right? Who are you seeking? Um, and when they, when he says it twice, who are you seeking? He gets a chance to say, I am, twice. And in between the two I am's, he uses the word who, who saith. It, it doesn't actually say, whom are you seeking? In the Greek, it's just whom says, who sayeth right? And it's, I am who says I am. In the moment that it's happening, no wonder they're falling on their butts. Like there's power in this stuff. God's whipping out. I am who I am, right? Moses, and and he's doing it in the same way that when he talked to Moses, in the same sense that Moses is about to deliver the children of Israel from the clutches of Egypt, Jesus is about to deliver the world from the clutches of sin. And at that precise moment in both situations, we hear the God of the universe saying, I am who says I am. The only one that can say I am with all past, future, and present tense. I told you I was going to geek out on this. Keep reading. (laughs) If you keep flashing forward a few verses, right? Peter slices off an ear. um, And Jesus says... Are you here to... How does? He, I didn't actually type it in here, did I? No. What's the next thing he says? For some reason, I didn't copy and paste it. Because, again, I was just in nuts mode at this point. After he cuts off the ear, what does he say? Yeah, so Peter slices off a guy's ear. Jesus and Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That? Yeah. So are you going to stop this process that God has given me? So he mentions that my Father has given me this cup. I'm sent by God. If you go back to Exodus 3, I got to flip back. Say to the children of Israel, the Lord God, your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So what God tells Moses is just remind them that, that I sent you. And what does Jesus do to Peter immediately after I am who I am? Jesus reminds Peter of who sent him. And I was like, Jesus. (laughs) At this point, you're going, for real? Jesus is more than a man. This is the God of the universe. Because I'm sure Peter isn't realizing, hey, that's an Exodus 3 reference you just made. But they're writing it down because it's what happened. And this interaction with the soldiers, it's what happened. And I think John probably thought, wait a sec, did he just do that? Um, Maybe. But you've got human writers recording a God of the universe acting in here. And there's just no way. So in the Greek, you take that whole narrative, and Jesus essentially says, I am who I am, which is the same thing that's going on in Exodus 3. And then he reminds Peter that God sent him in the same way that Moses was supposed to remind the children of Israel. No way. Right? I got one more. (laughs) These are super cool. Moses. uh, So there's the blind man story, right? Again, if you take the he out of this, if you go to John 9, verse 8 and 9, the neighbors therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind said, is this not he that sat and begged? Remember this story, right? There's a blind man and he gets healed. And some said, this is he others said, he is like him, but he said, I am. Um, I think this is really cool that when the blind man kind of reports on who healed him, he reports that I am healed him, or there's, that's one way you could read that. Um, Moses had to learn to be content with God's plan. Israel's likely going to need some more. So God gives Moses even more ammunition than this. So I am who says I am. Tell them I sent you. And then he says, this is my name Forever. And this is my memorial to all generations because I am as outside of time. Go and gather the the elders of Israel. Uh, So we see that there's still elders in Israel there. There's still tribal distinctions. Um, Gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Uh, This is a Genesis 50 quote, by the way. And you tell them what I said, and I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to the land flowing with milk and honey. I didn't make the joke again. (laughs) Moses gets to bring some good news to the people in the same way that Peter's going to get to bring good news after the resurrection. So some say the Israelites are going to resist this. They're going to want to stay comfortable in Egypt. I don't think that's there. That's one way to read what's going on here. The resistance isn't because they like hanging out in Egypt, because we just heard that they're struggling and groaning under the pressures of Egypt. That was the setup in chapter one, remember? So they're not having a great time in Egypt. But the resistance is because a known misery is better than an unknown, possibly worse misery right? So they're not necessarily going to get up and move. It's going to take some convincing. The convincing that God seems to think they'll need is just a reminder that he is God and that that's what's going to be what the Hebrews need to get off their duffs and move. God assures them that they will loot the Egyptians in the end. Uh, so the, the Israelites at this point are poor. They're not as wealthy as when Joseph oversaw them. Um, so we'll see that. Um, and God predicts that, that they'll follow, that they'll leave from this and that there'll be no resistance in verse 18. So I'll read verse 18. They will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the ed- elders of Israel to the king of Egypt. I like how God doesn't call him the Pharaoh. He just calls him the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord, our God. Um, They will heed your voice. I think this is a gracious thing from God. It had to be a hurtful memory that they didn't heed his voice last time, 40 years ago. So when God says this, he's kind of giving, at the beginning of verse 18, I think he's assuring Moses that this time they're going to listen to you. And they didn't last time, and that was probably pretty hurtful for Moses. Um, I also think it's nice that this time God's basically telling Moses that you and the elders of Israel are going to do this. Moses isn't going to have to do this on his own. And the last time, 40 years ago, he tried to do it on his own. But this time, he's going to do it with people instead of going out on his own. We've known a few people in our married life that try to do stuff on their own, and it generally doesn't work. And it's kind of sad because they get really excited about doing something, and they push and push and push and push, but nobody's really on board with it. And then they kind of get depressed because nobody's on board with their idea. And that's kind of what happened to Moses. His first time around, he just decided he was going to do things, and this time around, do it with the elders of Egypt, work with your team. And if you can work with your team, then you have a group of people moving forward on something. And then you're going to look around and there's going to be people in on it with you. um, Because you let them in at the beginning. Verse 19. But I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So the initial request to Pharaoh is, can we please have a holiday? Can we just go out and worship our God and have a few days? So this gives God an opportunity to do things the easy way. God often gives people the opportunity to do it the easy way. The plagues come because the Pharaoh doesn't choose the easy way. He's going to choose to fight against God. This is a common theme where people take the Bible way out of context. They say, what kind of God would do all these horrible things? And usually throughout the Bible, the critics will read the horrible things part, but they don't read the entire segment of time before it, where God tried to give people the easy way out. Um, but God's going to get His people out of Egypt, and there's going to have to be some uh, horrible things that happen that make that happen. But God initially, just to point out, um, He's going to—they're going to they're gonna make a simple request first, and God could have—or Pharaoh could have just said, "Sure, you can have your holiday." And at that point, I don't think there would have had to have been all these plagues. But God knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew he wasn't going to do it. He knew that he'd have to reach out and strike Egypt to make this happen. Um, so why go through it? If God knows all this is going to happen, why even go through the process? Why do the, the request for uh, you know, a little sacrifice vacation when God already knows Pharaoh's heart? Um, so this is one of those passages that strongly implies that humans have free will. This is not a Calvinist passage, right? This is more of a um, Armenian kind of thing is that humans actually have free will and God's allowing for that in this passage. Um, It would be really nice in life. One of my goals was if I could always listen to God the first time he's gently whispering something in my ear, life will go a lot easier and a lot more stress-free. If I can just listen to wisdom without having to go through all the horrible things, wouldn't that be a great way to live life? So, and in a new married life, if you could just listen to the wisdom of the successfully married people around you, all your grandparents and whatever, they're gonna have great advice and you can avoid a lot of troubles in your marriage by just listening to people. And I have always thought, wouldn't that be the great way to go? I don't wanna be a Pharaoh. I wanna be somebody who listens on the first time. I wanna say, here I am when God calls. Um, so anyways, verse 21 and I will give these this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. So you're going to leave Egypt with some cash in your hands. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver and gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and daughters. In other words, you're going to use your kids as pack mules, right? You're going to load them up with gold and crud as you leave. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Really? You're just going to go to your neighbor and say, can I have all your gold and silver? And they're going to hand it over. So if that happens, we know God's been at work. So God makes a promise that Moses has zero capability to make happen, right? So not only am I going to take you out of Egypt, I'm going to give you financial stability in the process, even though you're broke slaves right now. So there's no strategy here. God doesn't share how that's going to happen. He just asks Moses to take the next step into a completely preposterous situation. Um, Gladly for the history of the world, Moses is about to do this. Um, There's a law in Deuteronomy, it's interesting enough to turn there. So if you go to Deuteronomy 15, God actually sticks to his own law before he actually gives it because we don't in this point in history, Deuteronomy isn't there. Um, Moses hasn't written it yet. Um, But having the is, the Hebrews leave Egypt with all this stuff is actually fair pay because they've been working as slaves for 400 years. And a lot of that wealth was Joseph's to start with. Um, so in Deuteronomy 15 verses 12 through 14, uh, this is the law. This is how you should release your slaves. If thy brother, a Hebrew or a Hebrew woman be sold to you and serves for six years. In the seventh year, you shall let them go free. So even if someone sells their services as a slave in, in um, Hebrew law, that in the seventh year's jubilee, you get to go free. So you're never in lifetime slavery situations, which makes the slave owners a lot nicer to their slaves because you want them to voluntarily come back to you. Kind of like employees when we sign a contract, right? And when thou sends them out free from you, you shall not let them go away empty-handed. So when you let your slaves go, you're supposed to pay them, like employees, right? In fact, at this point, it's not what we would call slavery anymore. Now we're talking about a six-year contract with pay, right? So when they leave you, you shall furnish them, verse 14, you shall furnish them liberally out of your flock and out of your floor and out of the winepress of that wherewith the Lord thy God has blessed you, you shall give it to them. So you're supposed to, when they leave your service as a slave, you're supposed to load them up with a severance package, right? You're going to give them a little bit of everything so they go away with some wealth because they've worked for you for that long. So in that case, I think the final thought in Exodus three is this idea of um, when they're going to leave these Egyptians, they should go with what God has blessed them with. So when God blesses us, we're supposed to give that back. If we have people work for us, and I know, I think I'm the only one in the room that has ever had employees when people work with you, your job is to really pour abundance into their life um, and hopefully uh, give generously. Um, and I always tried to make sure that if, well, even just at Bethel, if people were doing extra work or taking some summertime for things, you pay abundantly. So a lot of times Bethel would want to break it down by hourly rates. And I was kind of like, well, if I'm hiring somebody and they have skills and talents, I'm paying for the skills and talents. I'm not paying for the hours. So I would try to pay like abundantly well so they thought it was a great deal because they're making 100 bucks an hour or something that's just really good money because it's their summer. And if God's blessed us anyway and we have grant money, we should give generously with that and make sure that people around us are taken care of. Um, this goes to tipping, which we're all a lot more familiar with. If God's blessed us abundantly and you've got somebody serving tables, that's really hard physical labor, right? And if you're coming in and you're praying before your meal... You should give generously at the end of the meal. You should give a tip that raises an eyebrow, right? And that's something that's really hard for us because we want to be stingy with our money and frugal with it. Um, And I'm always of the mind of like, well, then maybe I don't want to pray in public because I don't want to represent God when it comes to the paycheck time. But we're happy to pray in public and show how Christian we are. But when it comes to the paycheck time, we want to get stingy with the tip. And that for me is super convicting. And I know, but... There's this idea for the, as God's making this promise that, hey, you've been slaves to these people for this long. You're going to plunder them when you leave because that's what's fair and it's what's just is that you get paid for that work that you do and those people taking advantage of your hustle and your work and that tedium in the fields that they were doing for them, that you're going to get your pay for that and that's God's house it's going to take care of it. When we're treated unjustly, that same promise from God to the, children of Israel, applies to us. God will reward us justly. for We'll get our just rewards when we die and when we go to heaven. He sees when we're treated unfairly. He sees when we're treated unjustly. And it's not our job to necessarily judge that. It's our job to wait upon the Lord because the Lord will make sure that payday happens at some point. So give generously. Um, God will ensure that you're blessed because he doesn't need your money in the first place but he does need your heart to be in a place where that money isn't dominating how you think especially how you deal with other people and other humans in this case the pharaohs are ripping off the children of Israel and God's going to make that right before they leave which is a hard thing to make happen if you don't know how to make frogs come out of the sky so we'll see that as we go forward and we'll get into some of the plagues and all that sort of thing for now let's say a word of prayer Dear Lord, you are, you have been since the beginning of time. And Lord, as much as you're present with us now, you're still present with Abraham. You're still present with Moses. You're still present with our great, great grandchildren, Lord. And you are in all times and in all places, you are the only thing that can say I am. Uh, that you, you, you are and you are your own uh, reality, Lord. Uh, in the beginning, you. Um, and, and you were there in the beginning and you'll be there at the end. Uh, Lord, we're so stuck in time, it's hard for us to imagine that that eternal presence that you have. Um, we're, uh, we're chronological creatures, Lord. Help us to know and believe and to have faith that you are at the very same time loving and caring for us as you are on the cross dying for us in our sins. Lord, that the timelessness and the nature of your um, eternal being is something that's beyond our understanding, um, but you've given us just enough to appreciate Uh, that you are a God that stands throughout time. Lord, you have already done what you're doing and did in Egypt. You will do what you have done in Egypt. Um, And Lord, it's uh, amazing that your people, your children, are things that you save and you redeem and that you hear them and you hear our cries. Lord, when we're suffering or going through trials, you've already heard our cries. You've already been there with us. Um, You've already paid the cost to save us, Lord, and you already have a plan of salvation for us. Help us to endure those trials then with joy, to know that you've already won the war. Um, You have already saved uh, and you will save. Um, Lord, we uh, look forward to that day when we are um, redeemed, when we can come before you, Lord. Um, Not that we can uh, touch, Lord, that we are separate from you, but that we can take off our shoes and be on holy ground. We can be close to you. Um, And Lord, what a thing to praise and worship you for. What a thing to lift you up about. Um, Lord, that you are the God that we um, can know and can be known by you, Lord. And we just see how you've dealt with Moses, the graciousness that you gave him, uh, the peace that you gave him, Lord, the assurances you gave him. um, For his sake, Lord, you gave him those peace, those assurances, those words of comfort um, because you know Mo- Moses' heart as well as you know ours. Uh, you know what we need to hear. Um, you know what we need, Lord, to thrive. Lord, we thank you uh, for Zach and Alyssa both finding jobs before their marriage date, um, that they have been given great comfort and great assurance, Lord. And we just thank you for that gift. We thank you for the wonderful summer adventures that Catherine and Danny are out having, and that Bobby Jo is going to get her internship, Lord. And uh, these abilities that you've been able to throw uh, your servants around the world um, and have them serve you lord may you bless them and keep them uh, and be there and lord may grant get tons of ministry opportunities as a pool cleaner i mean holy moly get to be in people's homes cleaning their pools and you can just chat with people uh, so lord i just pray you bless them in that help him to just have a blast and to uh um, continue to learn and grow be with katie and and Uh, mom and I as we're off looking at people's houses and may you bless us in that and just uh, help us to have a joyful summer of just going out and seeing things and doing things in Jesus name we pray Amen. amen